Amen. Amen. If you can't preach after that, you can't preach. Um, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I know some of you may take a moment to try to find it. Some of you are just using the search feature. All right, Judges chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room. Uh, Everybody should be within arm's reach of at least one. And so if you prefer that route, that's a good way to go. If you don't own a Bible outside of this place, like if you can't call one your own, can't point to one and says, that's my Bible, man, we would love for you to take that one. Uh, we've got a thousand reasons. The chief one among it is that God uses his word to teach us about himself. We want you to know God. That's the best place to find him. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one. All right? it'll, be, it'll, it'll be a treat to us for you to go home with a Bible if you don't have one. All right. Um, also, let me give a quick word to, uh, to something else. I, I, I know I, I want to work on being a better pastor in a lot of ways. And so one of the things I've, I've noticed in, that I need to work on is uh, giving appreciation to those whom it's due. And so, uh, like, how many of y'all serve in our nursery? Yeah, so we have rotating teams that serve based on different weeks. And so if you have a child that's nursery age... Uh, Find one of these people after the service and give them a big old thank you, all right? Uh, maybe even a Dunkin' card, I don't know, all right? <laughs> By the way, I work in the nursery. <laughs> all right. Now, here's the deal, here's the deal. Uh, we want to celebrate the, the people who are serving week in and week out and all these different things, and there's a lot of other places to serve in our church. Uh, I mean, we could go on for, for days just talking about all the different ways people in our church serve, and, and so that's one group of people that I probably haven't given enough attention to and celebrated, and so if you're one of those people, uh, thank you. If you're one of the people who ended up taking kids while, just a second ago into the nursery and you're not in this room right now, we're praying for them, all right, because reasons, like my kids are in there. It's chaos. <laughs> And so, yeah, just, just give them a pat on the back later uh, in the day because, man, that is a group that doesn't get thanked enough, in my opinion. And so just, just make that happen. Uh, Judges chapter 6. So we are uh, getting pretty deep now into a series that we're calling The Story of God. And the premise isn't that complicated. Uh, we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament stuff, not just the Messianic prophecies towards the end of the Old Testament. We believe the entire Bible is about Jesus. Even the stories about guys like Noah in the ark and, and Adam in the garden and, and Moses up on the mountaintop. We believe that those stories are ultimately about about Jesus. And Jesus may never be uh, mentioned explicitly by name in any of those stories, but he's definitely the hero of those stories. All right? And those stories uh, always point back to a coming Jesus that is bigger and more beautiful and more fulfilling than any of those people could ever be. And so to prove that thesis, to walk us through that reality, we're taking a slow walk through the lives of the Old Testament major characters, and we're asking the question, how does their story tell me about the much more beautiful and much bigger story of God? But here's the deal. That question is a massive one. At least it feels massive at the onset. And so we've taken up the practice of breaking it down into four smaller questions, right? And those of you who have been here a while, you know what those questions are by now. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does their story preach the gospel? I'm of the belief that if we can answer those four questions faithfully, we actually position ourselves in a way that the big overarching story of God question isn't that hard to answer anymore, right? That if we answer these four questions correctly, faithfully, we get to a place where the story of God question is actually kind of easy to answer. So are you ready to jump into it and get this party started today? Who's our character? Those of you who have bulletin know, Gideon. 
Gideon. All right, so many people, those of you who have a big church background, you probably are very familiar with who Gideon is. You've heard his story. Some of you who don't have a church background, this one's going to be a little bit of a reach for you. Like, even if you didn't grow up in church, you kind of know who Moses is. You kind of know who Adam is. Like, you may not know all the details of their story, but you kind of have an idea. Gideon is probably one that those of you who don't have a church background are very familiar with. But let's give our guys some profile. Another day, another judge. The fleece guy. And another judge is needed. All right, let's look at question number one. How was Gideon raised up? Judges chapter six. So Gideon's story starts out in Judges chapter six. Um, and in verse one, we most assuredly see the tone set for not only Gideon's story, but it's a tone that's all throughout the book of Judges. Let's read verse one together. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So over and over again throughout the book of Judges, and, and now we see in the story of Gideon himself, his, his little microcosm inside the, the overarching story of Judges, we see this phrase over and over again. The people of Israel, the people of God, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God gave them over. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges, this is the theme. So let's look at Gideon's turn in the story. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. Seven years, Midian is a nation of people. Verse 2, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and other people of the east would come up against them. Verse 4, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste, uh, laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Okay, so things aren't going very well in this promised land, right? This land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. Over and over and over again, as soon as they get into this promised land, it seems, like we, we talked about last week, the reality that Joshua did not drive out uh, all the inhabitants of the land. He didn't complete his responsibility before God. God told him to drive out everybody in the land or else they would be their downfall. They would fall victim to sin. They would fall victim to slavery and they'd have to be rescued. They would be their downfall and Joshua didn't do it. And guess what happens? As soon as Joshua dies, God's people immediately begin to do exactly that. And the cycle begins, right? Generation after generation, they pick up the sin habits of the neighboring peoples. They become enslaved to those peoples. And then God raises up a, a general king-type leader called a judge to rescue them out of that slavery. They have peace for a little bit. 
and then the cycle repeats. Take up the sin habits, become enslaved, need to be rescued. Pick up the sin habits, become enslaved, need to be rescued. Wash, rinse, repeat. And by the time we get to chapter 6 of the book of Judges, this cycle has been already going on for several revolutions. And what some people think is about 200 years. It's a story they've heard before. Generation after generation. And so this promised land doesn't exactly feel very promised right now. In fact, they're constantly enslaved. And so now we catch up to the story in chapter 6, and it's the Midianites causing the problem, right? The Midianites are are neighboring people, and they sweep into the land, and, and the writer of the book of Judges calls them locusts at one point, devouring the land. Everything that the land of Israel can produce, God's people can produce crop-wise and all, is devoured by this neighboring people. They don't exactly like the Midianites right now. It's causing some major issues in the land and everybody's going hungry. And look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came... Notice it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Terebinth is just another word for tree. Which belonged to Joaz the Abias right. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where is all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephath of flour. The meat he put in a basket and, bro- and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff, of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there uh, to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiah's rites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, where stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. 
So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Okay, so let's call a time out there. I know 27 keeps going, but let's stop there. All right. So they've got a Midianite problem, all right? And no one knows what to do about it. And so God, specifically the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, approaches Gideon while he's processing some grain. And the Bible says that he's doing it in a wine press instead of in a grain press. Why is that? Well, apparently the famine is so bad that no one cares if you got wine, but you got to hide the fact that you got grain. Like, that's a pretty bad day to be living in. Who cares if you got the wine? Give me your bread. And so Gideon is hiding the fact that he's processing some grain. He's doing it in a wine press. And so it's bleak days that we're talking about here. And God approaches Gideon, but Gideon doesn't know that it's God. And God says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. To which Gideon responds, what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> sure, sure. If, if God was with us, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. Now remember, he, he doesn't know it's God. Anybody want to say that to God's face? Is that even true? Not even close. That's not a fair comment towards the Lord. We have already established by now that the, the problems going around the nation of Israel are not God's doing. It's their own junk that got them into this mess, right? It is the earthly consequences of their own sin that brought them to this point. Gideon accuses God of being absent. But instead of God vaporizing him right there, which I think he has the right to do, He instead tells Gideon that Gideon ought to do something about the Midianite problem. He overlooks that obvious sin and presses on the nerve a little bit. You should do something about the Midianite problem. And in verse 15, Gideon points out that he's not exactly the right guy for the job. He's from the tribe of Manasseh, which isn't the, the mighty warring tribe of the nation of Israel. And then on top of that, he says that his clan, his family, is least among the tribe of Manasseh. Oh, and on top of that, he's least in his father's house, in his own family. And so in Gideon's eyes, and in the eyes of the rest of the people who know Gideon, Gideon is exactly the last guy you would choose to be the mighty conquering warrior that would lead God's people out of slavery and bondage. Gee, I wonder why God would choose him then. Like those of you who have been here for the length of this series are probably starting to pick up the theme by now, right? This is exactly Gideon's story. I, I know it feels like this is on repeat, but that's the point. This is exactly Gideon's story. Gideon is the last guy you would raise up to be the mighty conquering warrior for God's people. Gideon starts to get the idea that this guy isn't just some random guy sitting under his daddy's tree, and so he wants some proof. So he, he asks for a sign. He wants to prepare some food, which, which the angel of the Lord then consumes by touching a rock with a stick and causing fire to eat it. That's an awesome picture. And Gideon all of a sudden realizes that he's not just talking to a mere man. He has been face to face with God, which simultaneously scares the wits out of him. And gives him some confidence, it seems. God tells him to tear down the Asherah pole 
an altar, and another altar to the false god Baal that belonged to his own daddy. And Gideon does so. Verse 27 begins with Gideon tearing down those poles. It's a cool story. But you may notice that we stopped in the middle of verse 27, right? Because we have a few other questions to answer this morning, starting with question number two. What made Gideon a seemingly bad choice? Now let's read all of verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did what as, did as the Lord had told him, period. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by what? He's too scared to do it during the daylight, so he does it in the middle of the night, right? Well, you see, it was strategic to do it at night because he would have the element of surprise. No, the text says he was afraid. He was afraid of his family. He was afraid of the other men of the town. Gideon's going to do what God's asking him to do, but he's going to do it in a backhanded way. He won't do exactly what God told him to do. He'll find a way around it so it doesn't cost him as much. He didn't want anybody to see him do it. He didn't want anybody to try to stop him. He's scared. Look at verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Verse 31, But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So they figure out it was Gideon, and now the whole town wants to kill him. That's a fun day. It's interesting on a couple of levels. Like, for starters, most notably, like nobody seems to have a clue it's that, that it's their worship of these false gods that have created all the problems around them. Instead, they just want to blame Gideon here. Gideon's a convenient out for them actually repenting of their real sin. They want to kill Gideon. So the story plays out that when they come looking for him, Gideon's in the house hiding, and his dad, Joash, comes out to the crowd to confront them. And Joash actually approaches this problem, I think, in a brilliant, super logical way. He says, if Baal is a god, well, then he won't need us to fight for him, will he? He'll take care of the problem himself. Let's, let's stand back and see what happens. If Baal is real, he doesn't need us to fight his battles for him. In other words, stand back and we'll see what happens. But then nothing happens. Baal does nothing because Baal can't do anything because Baal ain't real. And so Gideon begins to look a little more impressive in the eyes of his people, doesn't he? This brazen kid, however old he is at this point, this, this young guy who doesn't know any better, tore down the altars of our people and nothing happened to him. Maybe there's something to this. And in the eyes of his people, Gideon starts to look like a bigger deal. Let's look at the next part of the story, verse 33. 
Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiazrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. All right, so uh, God continues to bless Gideon, right? It says a couple of things. One, that he clothes him in his spirit, which is a really cool thing that doesn't happen often in the Old Testament. Like, receiving the Holy Spirit is something that definitely happens in the New Testament. That's a, that's a sign of receiving Jesus. But in the Old Testament, that's a few and far between. And so Gideon receives the Holy Spirit, and however that looks, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't specify. But it also says that God surrounds him with a massive army. Right? Later we're going to learn that it's about 32,000 fighting men. They just kind of flock to Gideon at this time. As the Midianites are starting to gear up for a fight on the border, God surrounds him with a big army. Think that's a coincidence? Probably not a coincidence. Look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So things are beginning to elevate, right? Gideon starts to get a little nervous. And so he asks God for a sign. Are you going to be with us? He wants to know if God is going to bless their efforts in the fight. And so the question that really bugs me is this. Did Gideon need a sign from God? Wait, 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 wait. Before you answer, remember, the angel of the Lord told him to do this. In fact, he, he said he would be with Gideon as he did it. So, does Gideon need a sign? Wait, 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 wait. Before you answer, remember, he tore down the altar and the Asherah pole of a false god without any consequences at all. Did Gideon need a sign from God? Wait. Before you answer, remember that he's just had an army flock to him. All right? As a fight is about to happen, as this battle is starting to, to ramp up, all these fighting men come to Gideon's side and they're ready to take him on. So does Gideon need a sign from God that God was going to bless him in this fight? No. He's already gotten several signs, right? He's already gotten several signs. Which means that Gideon constantly asking for a sign is not a good thing. It's a sin thing. He doesn't trust God in this moment. He doesn't trust God. I think most everybody understands that, but listen, we can, we can go to a Christian bookstore, maybe even our own in this town, on, tomorrow morning, and probably find a, a couple of books on the shelf that sell real well that promise that if you do something like this, you'll figure out God's will for your life. It's complete train robbery of this story. The fleece was a bad thing. Gideon had no business asking God for another sign. If God shows up to you face to face and says, I want you to do this and I'll be by your side the entire way, asking him later, are you sure about this? <laughs> Prove it to me 
is not a humble heart. It's an arrogant one. Gideon doesn't trust God in this moment. And even after God, who doesn't have to give him a sign, does so, like God fulfills his request, right? He wakes up the next morning, he wrings the dew out of the fleece, and it fills up a bowl. But the ground is, the ground is dry. It worked. Even though God doesn't have to grant this request, he does so. And then verse 39, we see this. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. So he reverses, he flips it. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground there was dew. Have you ever thought that the Lord wasn't patient? Think again. I mean, how gracious is he toward Gideon in this moment? Gideon just never seems to get it. But even still, even still, God gives him a sign. God is going to raise up Gideon for his purposes, but it's not because God desperately needs Gideon on his team. Not even close. There's probably much better options available for God. Definitely smoother options available for God. Any reading of the story of Gideon that paints him as some fearless warrior, confident in the things he's been called to do, grossly misunderstands this story. And so Gideon desperately needs to be redeemed here, right? But thanks be to God, God's story is a redemption story. And just like Gideon, I often need to be redeemed. And so what about question number three? How did God redeem him? And in Judges chapter 7, we read one of the coolest stories in the Bible. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Verse 2. Uh, the Lord said to Gideon, The people, who are with, uh, people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are still too many, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, uh, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. And so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man into his home. Uh, so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent the, all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to, to, said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down into the camp. 
Then he went down with Pura, uh, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were, with the, who were in the camp, verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came into the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hands Midian and all the camp. What's crazy about the story so far is Gideon hadn't fought a battle yet. So how does this guy know his name? He, he wouldn't unless God put it on his mind, right? Dream rolls out. There's a guy there who go, I know what that dream is about. And the only reason he knows Gideon's name is because God put that answer on his mind. So God is working long before Gideon ever steps onto the scene here, right? Verse uh, 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Verse 17, and he said to them, look, to, uh, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. And so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning in the middle of the watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars and they were uh, that were in their hands uh, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held in their hand left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the lord and for gideon every man stood in his place around the camp and an army ran they cried out and fled Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the enemy, our army, excuse me. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerara, uh, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Uh, 24, uh, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan and they captured the two princes of Midian Oreb and Zeb and they called Oreb uh, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and they killed uh, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb uh, they was obviously named later uh, then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan so the Midianite army as this story begins is running about 135,000 folks we, we put the math together later on in chapter 8 135,000 people in this army. And at the beginning of the story, Gideon's army, if you remember, has 32,000 people. So what are, how are those odds? Yeah, a little more than four to one. But apparently God thinks that that's too much in his favor. So he gives Gideon a couple of tests to whittle the army down to 300 men. That should say 32,000. He asks for volunteers who are scared to go home, or scared uh, of the fight, and gives them permission to just go home. And in that moment, 22,000 of his 32,000 fighting men pack up their stuff and leave. Two-thirds of his army walk out the door when he gives them permission to. That can't be demoralizing at all, right? It's a, it's a pleasant little day. And then God says, ah, there's still too many. I don't like that. 
So, so I got another test for you. Bring them down to the water and, 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 and set them in different camps based on this weird thing with the water. And, and so he whittles it down from 10,000 to 300. So it's been a good day for Gideon. He's about to have to go fight a battle against 135,000 people. And God is whittling his army down to 300 people. Because it doesn't matter how many men God is using. God's going to do everything he wants exactly how he wants. Right? Whether God's using 130,000, 300,000, three, doesn't matter. God's going to do what he wants. But the nation of Israel needs to learn this. Gideon needs to learn this. They need to be reminded of who their God is. And so he intentionally paints Gideon into a corner here. Forget about four to one. The odds now are about 450 to one. Pleasant afternoon. And that's the point. Because God is doing something so ridiculous that only he could get the credit for it. This isn't Gideon's battle to win. God's going to do something here. In fact, when this story begins, when this fight begins, Gideon's army isn't even holding a weapon. They got a, they got a pot with a torch in it in one hand and a trumpet in the other. They make a big old loud noise at the same time. Throws the Midianite camp into a tizzy and everybody who doesn't kill themselves runs away. So let me say this as clearly as it needs to be said. Gideon is not the one responsible for the victory. Gideon is raised up by God to be used by God for that victory. That's the purpose of this story because this story isn't ultimately Gideon's story. Gideon plays a major role in it but it's not Gideon's story. This is God's story. But we still have one more question to answer this morning, right? How is the gospel told, preached, proclaimed through Gideon's story? So in chapter 8, uh, you can read that for homework later, uh, the story continues and Gideon unites God's people, which had been divided at this point, and it was pretty terribly divided, and, and they drive out the rest of their enemies, right? They, they, he unites them together and they fight off all these people. Great. God's people are rescued. Woo! But, we read this in verse 22 of chapter 8. Shortly after they drive out these people, we see this little story. The men, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request uh, of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. And they had golden earrings, uh, for they had golden earrings because they were the Ishmaelites. Verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a big pile. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. 
Verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued for the, uh, before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. So the people in the, in, in, that he united in this battle, they win this battle, and they want to make Gideon their king. It's kind of a natural thing, right? I mean, who else are you going to have be in charge of your, your nation of people right now, right? How about the guy who united your armies together and drove out the enemies? Like, that's politics, right? You, you make that guy be your leader. And what does Gideon say? Absolutely not. God's going to be your ruler, right? He says the right thing. He says the right thing. The problem with that is that everything after Gideon says that looks a whole lot like the actions of a king. In fact, a pretty wicked one, if you read the story closely. Those of you who pay attention to politics have already seen this kind of thing play out before, right? Forget about what they said, watch what they do. So what does Gideon do? Well, the first thing after he says, I won't be your king, God will be your king, he asks everybody to throw all their gold onto a big pile and he's going to make an ephod. What's an ephod? It's a priestly garment. Think of it like a poncho thing, a priestly poncho. Right? It's a priest garment. And so the obvious question that stems out of that, is Gideon a priest? Nope. The scaredy cat from the tribe of Manasseh is not a priest from the priestly tribe of Levi. Which means, even if Gideon wants to make a career change, he has no right to become a priest. So what business does Gideon have owning an ephod? He doesn't. He has no business owning an ephod, especially an incredibly ornate, super expensive one. And where does the text say, what does the text say he does with it? He puts it on display in his hometown, right? Is the tabernacle in his hometown? Nope. Is the tabernacle where they keep all the priestly stuff for the tribe of Levi to do their priestly duties? And so he's got a priestly garment in his hometown. He's not a priest and is nowhere near the place where the priests do their stuff. And what does it say that the people did with it? Not just worshipped. The ESV translate that word as they hoard after it. Super light word. So follow me here. It, it doesn't matter how you want to spin this, paint it. There's no positive way to tell the end of Gideon's story. It falls apart, guys. It falls apart. Right after Gideon says, I will not be your king, God will be your king, he immediately sets himself up as not just a king, but a sort of priestly king. Think that'll end well for him? So God's people are rescued. But, but, it gets worse. In verse 29 of chapter 8, we read this. Jerobel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon, same guy, had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiasrites. 
as soon as Gideon died. As soon as Gideon died. I mean, shouldn't the ending of the story be a happier one? Like, don't we want it to be one? People were enslaved. God raised up a guy to rescue them out. Cue sunset. The problem with that, though, is that's just not the tone of the book of Judges. You will not find a happy ending anywhere in the book of Judges. Because Israel can't seem to figure out that it's their own sin that's causing this mess. And so over and over and over again, we're left with a consistent longing that there's just got to be another way. Surely this isn't it. I mean, we've been, we've been rescued out of Egypt and we've been brought through the wilderness and now we're in this promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. We're supposed to have rest, but surely this is not the end of the story. Surely. And so how in the world is the gospel proclaimed in the life of Gideon? And the answer is that he's just another version of the same sad story. And we need to understand that the story always plays out the same if the characters are always the same. We need to introduce a new character. A story repeating itself over and over again in a 400-year cycle on our, our best effort on our best day is not enough. But thanks be to God, he has not left us to that end because in Gideon's day, there was a judge yet to come who would rescue God's people on a far greater level. Far greater level. His victory would be over an even greater enemy and against even more fantastic odds. But, unlike Gideon, this judge with a capital J would have the right to claim the title as king. And unlike Gideon, he would have the right to claim the title of priest. In fact, he would be a perfect priest, a mediator lasting forever in the order of Melchizedek, if you know your Bible well. And unlike Gideon, once this king ascended to his priestly throne, he would never die and never leave it for the next guy to figure out what to do next. It's his forever. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus would step onto the scene and accomplish far more than Gideon could ever dream about because where Gideon had to have his arm twisted in order to take up his responsibilities, Jesus laid down every privilege of heaven and attacked the problem. I want that one for me. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might reconcile us to himself and do so forever. And so our big question this morning isn't really that difficult to answer anymore. How does Gideon's story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? You already know the answer. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so we learn today that God raised up Gideon to be a shadow of a far, far better Gideon to come in Jesus. This is the story of God. 
The story of God is no small deal. It is the great, greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? You do that by pressing into his word. Maybe consider starting with the book of Judges. Drive the point home that we need a better judge. I know that's not most people's first choice to start their Bible reading plan in, but God has given it to us for the explicit purpose of knowing him. And so if you can know him there, it's valuable to you. Check out Judges. We can take another step, right? Maybe Gideon's story is a lot like yours. Maybe you've been fearful of what God has been calling you to walk in. Maybe you're at the other end, though. Maybe you've had a little success in those things and it's gone straight to your head. Gideon's guilty of both. Hear me, today is a good day to repent of that and walk in obedience. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing, we'll have a couple of folks up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that's something that's helpful for you today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Say it every week. Uh, we hope that you find this to be a safe place to be, a, to be able to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. But listen, uh, you can respond to God's word this morning too by meeting the one that this story is ultimately about. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus as Savior. Jesus died on the cross because neither you nor I are capable of bridging the gap between God and man ourselves. And like Gideon, we fall short and always will fall short. And if the characters only ever stay the same, we'll only ever get the same results. But Jesus steps in. And through his work on the cross, he bridges that gap for us. And so maybe you're here today and, and, and you're saying, you know what, today's the day I want to trust this Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Come talk to me, man. I'd love to walk you through what that looks like. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of Judges. Thank you for the story of Gideon. Gideon desperately needed a savior. He couldn't be everything you called him to be. Couldn't be everything Israel needed to him to be. you are a God who works in spite of Gideon's failures. And you are a God who works in spite of mine. So God, just like Gideon, we need you to redeem us. On the big scale, but also on the little scale. Even in the everyday mundane stuff. I don't have the mundane everyday stuff figured out. I need a savior there. God, for those in here who, who have stories like Gideon where, where we're either fearful or overconfident, would you convict us of sin and draw us to yourself? Help us to see that it's through nearness to you that everything works out. God, for those in here who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself today? Would you open their eyes to see your face? When Gideon finally got the, the idea that he wasn't just talking to some random guy under the tree, it changed him. And I'm confident that when we see you for who you are, it changes us. So show yourself to people this morning. You are good. You are lovely. You are all powerful. And you are doing a mighty work. 
Thank you for inviting us into your story. Show us the way. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.